This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It was a holiday weekend. We were doing the show on New Year's Day. Nothing was going on. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and yet I ended up having an incredibly busy weekend. Hope you had a good one. I guess I should start by saying Happy New Year. This is the first podcast of 2023. Glad to have you along. Um, and, you know, when you do, we had just this uh, anomaly of having a, a show on Christmas Day and a show on New Year's Day. You know, you can't expect a lot of people to come waltzing in on those kind of holidays. So you do a lot of pre-taping. And I was very happy with some of the segments that we pre-taped. And then, you know, you try to get guests for... Um, the live portion of the show. We, it actually was, if you want to take a look at the Media Buzz segments that are online, I mean, uh, did a deep dive on Twitter uh, and pressure for the Biden administration to remove people, journalists, as well as doctors and activists uh, whose views on COVID were deemed unacceptable. Um, we talked a lot about George Santos. We'll give you the latest on him today, the talented Mr. Santos, uh, as some are calling him. Um and, you know, the release of Trump's tax returns, the tax returns being given out by Democrats on the Friday of New Year's weekend. And it turned out, you know, everybody was scrambling. Well, you know, if you look at this one, there's a red flag here. Like, it just wasn't much there. Most of it had already leaked out. And so I feel like we've gone through this for six years now. Whoa, wait, wait till the Mueller investigation's over. Wait till we get his tax returns. Well, real estate taxes are complicated. And a lot of it, even some of the experts who have no love for Donald Trump, were on TV saying, yeah, look, a lot of this is legal. It may, may rankle people that somebody who's a wealthy businessman ends up paying, you know, no taxes one year as president, $750 another year as president. But doesn't mean that there's anything that's illegal about it. Sometimes in Washington, what's legal is the scandal. But what, what caused me to have to, you know, break a sweat was when I woke up Saturday morning and realized that Barbara Walters had died. And also through some sort of cosmic coincidence that Pope Benedict XVI had died. But when it came to Barbara, I felt a special responsibility. And so I basically like threw on some clothes, ran into the office, broke a couple of speed limits and was able to do uh, the noon show and also talk to a reporter who was doing an obit. What really struck me, a couple things, is some of the young women who obviously knew who Barbara Walters was and, and admired her, but didn't really know much about her. And that's kind of understandable. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, she had been retired, stayed out of the limelight, despite all the jokes that she would never be able to retire. I remember asking her about that in one of the many interviews that we did. And in a way, it's kind of, uh, there's a certain parallel here to Pope Benedict because he is the first pontiff in 600 years to step down while he was still alive. Usually, whoever is the incumbent pope dies and there's a Vatican funeral and then there's the 
maneuvering in the contest for the next pope. But we already have a pope in Pope Francis. So I talked about that and how the conservative media love Pope Benedict and don't love Pope Francis for his more tolerant, who am I to judge, um, approach to gays, to divorce Catholics and so forth. But my point is that if you're of a certain age, you don't really remember much about Benedict's papacy because he has been, although he lived, you know, sort of in the next cottage over, I guess, on the grounds where Pope Francis lived, you know, it's just odd to have two living popes given the history of the church. Anyway, back to Barbara. So I felt some responsibility as a guy who's not only been around long enough to have followed her career, but as as somebody who was fortunate enough to have worked with her a lot. By work with, I meant, you know, I could call her up, get her on the phone for a story. I did a number of TV interviews with her. I did a number of print interviews with her, all of which I had to go scrounging around to find because although she was 93, you know, we I just didn't have any inclination that this was coming. And I wanted to think about what I could contribute because, you know, the the shorthand is just, you know, she was this trailblazer and she made it possible for women to have careers in news. And she was, you know, she was the master of the get. That used to be an inside uh, industry term, meaning you get the big interview that no one else, that everyone else wants. And, you know, some of her competitors, Diane Sawyer uh, and Katie Couric and others, you know, would were friends with her but would often be frustrated that the interview that they wanted would only go to Barbara. But it was so much deeper than that. And and this is where I felt like, okay, so I got to know her. She was always extraordinarily gracious to me. And then I realized she was that way with everybody. I mean, of course she had people who, you know, she was at odds with, but um, she, she had this joy. I mean, what, what better word can I use? She loved what she did. She started out, you know, dad was a nightclub owner, and so she saw celebrities up front, uh, up close, I guess I should say, not as um, people who would be put on a pedestal, but, you know, who had the same quirks and problems as everybody else. And, you know, it is embarrassing, frankly, looking back now at the start of her career because she was a Today Show girl. What did that mean? It means she got to dress up as a Playboy bunny and go and do a piece on the Playboy clubs around the country. It means she was relegated to women's issues. It means, you know, she'd be brought on for the softer stuff. But that was the, it was a boys club. It was an awful boys club. Men ruled the world. They ruled the TV business. They made the hiring decisions. They decided who got to do what. And rather than complain about it, Barbara Walters tried to find a path, a niche for herself. And so she slowly, because the audience liked her. And so she slowly you know, raised her profile until she became an actual co-host of the Today Show, the first woman to do that on any morning show. And yet, you know, I'm looking through the clips and trying to see what I can use. And we just posted uh, my little tribute online if you want to check it out. Um, The other co-host, Frank McGee, there was a sort of an unwritten rule, and she talked about this. He got to ask three questions of whoever the guest was before she could ask her first question. And yet, you know, she didn't uh, go to the Human Rights Commission. She didn't do interviews whining about it. She mostly decided to go out and get her own stories, her own exclusives, 
that nobody could take away from her. So, you know, she became extremely well-known with the Today Show. And then I remember this being, you know, it was like on the cover of the news magazines. ABC stole Barbara Walters away and made her the first woman to co-anchor an evening newscast, ABC's evening newscast in the mid-70s, where she was paired with Harry Reasoner. And you would think, given her accomplishments at that point, that this would be kind of a genius move. And she was called the Million Dollar Baby because that was her salary, the then unheard salary of a million dollars a year. And yet, Harry Reasoner was an insufferable prig toward Barbara Walters. I used that phrase on the air, and one of the others said, wow, you say, well, I think you said, and I said, no, no, it was prig. <laughs> and he made clear that he didn't think she had any right to be there sitting next to him. He was a serious journalist, and and she had entered the temple, and, and her mere presence was defiling. I, I mean, it is pathetic. I think if this had happened today, you know, with social media and everything else, that Reasoner would have, you know, been made to be a complete clown. And he ultimately had to leave ABC, and she went on to this spectacular career. She was the bigger man. And then CBS years later tried a version of that by pairing Dan Rather with Connie Chung. And that didn't work out very well either. You know, it's hard because these evening news jobs are so constricting. I mean, it's 22 minutes. And um, so there's a lot of it is, you know, you, there were certainly key interviews on the evening news, but a lot of it is tossing to reporters and packages and so forth. Um, but as I thought about it, I mean, here you had this woman. I mean, I could barely keep up with all the examples because she interviewed everybody. She interviewed presidents going back to Richard Nixon, who in 1980 sat down with her and she asked the question, I've been asked so many times, do you wish you would burn the tapes, the infamous White House secret tapes? And he said, yes, you know, it was LBJ's system, but I left it in place there and I shouldn't have done that. And obviously he believes that had he not kept that taping system, he wouldn't have had to resign the presidency. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All these presidents that Barbara Walters talked to, uh, Jimmy Carter, she said, be good to us. She interviewed Barack Obama and asked him, you know, your supporters say you've done all these things and why are you so unpopular? Obama kind of laughed. Um. So when you look at the broad scope of it, I mean, there's nobody that she didn't talk to. Margaret Thatcher, Boris Yeltsin, Yasser Arafat, Catherine Hepburn, what kind of tree would you be? Princess Grace, and on and on and on and on. And yet, you know, she had this fascination with the lurid and tabloid crime stories of the day. You know, if there was a, if Mike Tyson bit off part of the ear of a boxer or Gene Harris was a criminal defendant or Klaus von Bülow, was a criminal defendant. Barbara wanted to talk to that person. And I just felt some responsibility as somebody who'd been fortunate enough to get to know her over the years. And, you know, she was extraordinarily nice to me. And I realized to everybody who 
Not that she didn't, couldn't take a whack at somebody when she didn't like them, but that I wanted to pay tribute to her in a way that would do justice to her career. And it wasn't just that she made a name for herself in a business that was so male-dominated. It wasn't just that she got all these incredible interviews. It wasn't just that at mid-career, she transformed the daytime TV business by starting The View. You know, just think about what a cosmic shift that was, the idea that, that people would tune in to hear a bunch of women talking about whatever the subject was. And, you know, that show had its good years and its bad years, but there was always a touch of class. When Barbara was there, she was part of the news division. It, it was an entertainment show. And, you know, you and she had to deal with all these egos like Rosie O'Donnell, and there were always all these feuds going on. But, you know, they could start with these political hot topics and debate what was going on on the most important issues in the world and then bring in some movie star or some celebrity or... Uh, somebody else, and presidents would go on, and presidential candidates would go on. You know, I mean, and certainly in most recent years, it is lean left, usually four to one. Um, but it's it's made its mark. It's been interesting to watch. And so, here's Katie Couric writing a piece in the New York Times. When I was competing with her for a big get, I knew I had to gird myself for the battle. I can't count how many times, much to my chagrin, I got word that a sought-after newsmaker was sitting down for an exclusive interview with Barbara. I was crestfallen when Christopher Reeve, the Superman actor who became quadriplegic uh, and who I had gotten to know and greatly admired, decided to take part in a primetime special with Barbara at ABC. Uh, On more than one occasion, says Katie, Barbara told me I reminded her of her younger self. Neither of us is particularly glamorous, she said. They weren't, you know, classic beauties. Wasn't quite sure how to take that, says Katie. Uh, during my early days of today, she was one of my biggest cheerleaders. I once did an impromptu interview. I remember this with George H.W. Bush, who unexpectedly showed up while Barbara Bush was giving me a tour of the White House. The next day, I received a handwritten note that said, Dear Katie, you were terrific with Mrs. Bush. You knew far more than she did. And nabbing the president was a real coup. You are so darn good. Bravo, Barbara. I still have it framed in my office. And then she, Barbara was always interested in Katie's dating life. And she said years later, when she met my future husband, John Molnar, at several social events, she told him, well, it looks like you're not going anywhere. So I guess I better get to know you. She is just, uh, she's just very funny. She just had this joy. I can't think of a better word. She loved what she did. And she loved sticking into the competition and all that. So I was trying to think through what was it, what was the quality that Barbara Walters had that set her apart from everybody else, beside, you know, being a great interviewer and all of that, beside being funny, beside the longevity. And I really think it's that we now take for granted something that she proved to be possible, which is you turn on any cable newscast, any hour, and you will find, you know, the lead story might be some Supreme Court decision. Then there's the Idaho murder case where a suspect has just been charged. And then there's somebody promoting a movie. And then there is a piece about abortion. You know, we just sort of toggle back and forth in an age when everything's available instantly on our phones. But it used to be that there was this grand divide. Either you were a proponent of serious journalism, Walter Cronkite, that's the way it is. 
or you were on the other side of that chasm and you were into crime stories and celebrity news and movie stars and so forth. And Barbara Walters showed, led the way, really. You know, people called her a trailblazer. I mean, she kicked down walls, I think. That you could be a smart-thinking person, not necessarily a woman, and be interested in all these things. That it didn't reflect badly on you, the audience, if you wanted to know what was going on in the Middle East, where she famously had that first ever joint interview with Menachem Begin of Israel, and Amwar Sadat of Egypt, leading to the thaw in Egyptian-Israeli relations. But you also cared about her interview with Monica Lewinsky. That Every big-name journalist wanted that interview. There was just this unbelievable competition, who was going to get the British rights and all of that. And she sat down with Barbara. And I rewatched it for this piece that I put together. And she yeah. said to her, you can see the clip online, um... You lifted your jacket and showed the president of the United States your thong underwear. What were you thinking? Who does that? And Monica kind of laughed nervously. Um, But, you know, Barbara had that ability to ask that direct question, that blunt question, and often get a reasonable answer. And you couldn't say, well, this is just a tabloid story and it's just all about gossip and the blue dress because Bill Clinton just went through an impeachment and acquittal. So it was that story in a way merged on its own terms as a kind of microcosm, serious journal, high, high journalism and low journalism. But Barbara kind of devoted her career, whether she intended to or not. She never, she never said, I would set out to be this remarkable person. I just wanted to make a living and, and do what I could do. And I think that is her legacy. We take it for granted now that people can be interested in all kinds of things high, low, medium, and it's all journalism. Is there great journalism and sleazy journalism? Sure. But I think the audience is smart and gets that. You know, let me just uh, wrap up on a couple other things here. Kevin McCarthy still trying to become speaker, and we will find out tomorrow, January 3rd, whether he's got the votes. He needs 218 votes to become House Speaker. And so yesterday... He did a big conference call with other Republicans. And McCarthy said he didn't want to do this. It's kind of like taking a job, but giving all your worst critics a loaded gun. He said, I will give you the ability to, in effect, call a no-confidence vote in me. Like they do in the British Parliament. Call for a new election for Speaker. If five members agree to bring that to the floor. You know, the, the House on the Republican side has been going through this for a long time. John Boehner essentially was pushed out or decided to push himself out because he couldn't deliver his right wing. Paul Ryan decided not to run for re-election because of problems with his right flank, which by that time was, you know, becoming the MAGA base of President Trump. And so... McCarthy may have to agree to this on the theory that, look, I'm a pretty good wheeler-dealer, I'll get the job, I'll manage to make everybody happy, and this no-confidence vote will never come. But talk about planting the seeds of your own potential political self-destruction. So he tries to uh, wrap it into a uh, 
an ethical approach. The simple fact is that Congress is broken and needs to change. That's the beginning of McCarthy's letter to the conference, uh, in which he says, look, members of both parties have been relegated to the sidelines with these massive bills being drafted behind closed doors, rushed to the floor at the last minute. And that's exactly what happened because the GOP and them leadership wanted to get home for Christmas and didn't want to default on U.S. government debt. Uh, there was this $1.7 trillion, you know, pork-laden monstrosity that actually had some serious policy stuff in it, such as codifying same-sex marriage, um, as well as um, different kinds of aid, for constituent groups, but also for a bailout for Maine lobstermen. And then there were things that didn't make it, like COVID relief and aid for our Afghan allies who were left behind. So it was a mess. Nobody had time to read the thing. It's the same thing Congress has always done. If, if, if Kevin McCarthy can change that, wow. But at the same time, he's also made this other concession to this group led by Republican from Pennsylvania, Scott Perry, that didn't, uh, but at the same time, McCarthy is making other concessions, and still, this group of dissident conservative Republicans, led by Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry, says it's not satisfied. Oh, it's a step in the right direction. For example, would allow the House Ethics Committee to take complaints directly from the public, as opposed to just from a member of the House. Also, McCarthy would create a new subcommittee as part of the Judiciary Committee called the Weaponization of Federal Government. You can see where this is going. To focus on another conservative request, which is the White House assault on civil liberties, meaning if Joe Biden doesn't have control of the border, what about civil liberties? If Joe Biden says he's unilaterally going to forgive student loans, if you meet certain criteria, is that unconstitutional? the mess at the border, and on and on and on. And so it will actually end up looking into the January 6th committee itself. It's, it's just kind of whiplash. And, and going back to uh, the business about Trump's taxes, you know, what's now to stop Republicans from releasing Hunter Biden's taxes? You know, he's under federal investigation. Taxes are part of it. They can just obtain it and put it out there try to tire the president to some of the global buck-raking that his son was doing. What are you going to say? It sets a terrible president. You just put out Donald Trump's tax returns at the last minute, and it didn't really amount to anything, except a lot of chewing the fat about, you know, what's a legal deduction and what's not, if you're in the real estate business. Speaking of Donald Trump, on New Year's Eve, when many of you were going to a party or going out to dinner, Trump was on Truth Social. He started out by talking about, wow, so while Trump hating CNN and MSNBC, parentheses MSDNC ratings, are both at record lows, numbers they have never seen before, they're toast. Fox News ratings are also way down because they never say Trump or truth, never talk about the rigged presidential election. And as a fake polling network, our giant MAGA base, much bigger than anyone knows, does not like watching Fox play their games. Their ratings will continue to sink, make America great again. But he did like, you know, the other day he denounced the New York Times. But when the New York Times said the true social is getting some traction, now he loves the New York Times. Anyway, the business about Fox's ratings, it just happened to inconveniently be not true. Not only did Fox just finish its seventh straight year as the top rated cable news network, it finished its seventh straight year as the top cable network in any category. 
sports, entertainment, you name it. I mean, something that once would have been unheard of. Now, are the ratings as high as, you know, during the presidential election year of 2020? Not, nobody's ratings are that high. But if you compare it to everybody else, I mean, Fox has done really, really well. But, you know, if Donald Trump thinks that suddenly people of Fox facing the prospect of a contested primary, whether it's Trump versus Ron DeSantis, whether it's Trump versus DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, and Mike Pompeo and others, are just going to start adopting the rigged election business. You know, on Media Buzz yesterday, um, one of my guests, Gail Trotter, said, well, Donald Trump can't grouse about the 2020 election. But Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams and Al Gore, they certainly did so. Yeah, but the difference is they all conceded. Hillary Clinton conceded in a phone call in 2016. Al Gore conceded the next day in the 2000 election. I'm not saying it shouldn't be brought up, but there's a little bit of whataboutism here. Donald Trump doesn't just grouse about it. He wants, an, he wants to be reinstated. He thinks there should be, a, at the very least, a new election, despite the fact with all these lawsuits, he hasn't been able to prove that the election was rigged. And the more and more people, we've seen this, you know, whether it's Kellyanne Conway or Hope Hicks or others coming out, uh, are not making that claim. But... That doesn't mean that he's not going to, in a strong position, to go ahead and win the nomination. He could well easily win the nomination. And we could have a rematch. Or maybe it's Trump versus somebody else. Oh, uh, yesterday, New Year's Day. Here's more Trump on True Social. It wasn't my fault that the Republicans didn't live up to expectations in the midterms. I was 233 to 20. It was the abortion issue, poorly handled by many Republicans, especially those that firmly insisted on no exceptions, even in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother that lost large numbers of voters. The people that pushed so hard for decades against abortion got their wish from the U.S. Supreme Court and just plain disappeared, not to be seen again. Well, you know, Donald Trump always presented himself as a pro-life president. He wasn't always pro-life before he got into politics. But he's right in terms of the cold political calculation, which is, had there not been the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs, I don't think there would have been the surge among Democratic voters. And maybe there would have been a red wave. But nonetheless, you know, Trump was not one of these people who jumped up and down and said, okay, now we have to, as Mike Pence says, we have to completely outlaw it. You know, none of this turning it back to the states. We have to have a nationwide ban. Well, as we've seen in certain states, a lot of people, even if they didn't particularly like abortion, were comfortable with the idea that ultimately a woman within certain parameters, which I mean, don't mean nine months, but within a certain time frame, for example, in Florida, it's 15 weeks, um, would have that option. So it's not that Trump is wrong here, but he's certainly... Uh, Certainly not happy about being blamed. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right. Um, I spent a lot of time on the program yesterday dealing with one George Santos. And, and by the way, I mean, this guy, I don't even understand how this didn't come out during the election, that the Republican who just won this. And by the way, speaking of Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy hasn't said anything about George Santos' whole reputation being built on a web of lies because he needs his vote with only a four-seat majority, and we'll probably get it tomorrow. There was a lot of whataboutism going on. Well, you know, Biden lied about this, that, and the other thing, and uh, Hillary Clinton said she underwent sniper fire when she landed in Bosnia. That's true. Biden said he drove an 18-wheeler. You can find lots of examples, and I've talked about and written about lots of these examples, but 
at least these people had the jobs they claimed to have. Hillary Clinton was first lady and a United States senator. Joe Biden was a United States senator and a committee chairman and then vice president and then president of the United States. So if you tell a whopper, it doesn't let you off the hook, and certainly it should be aggressively covered. But George Santos, I mean, didn't graduate from college, as he now acknowledges, despite citing two colleges. He didn't work for Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, despite claiming he had. He didn't own a lot of real estate property, despite claiming he had. And on and on and on, up through this $700,000 that he lent his campaign, and nobody quite knows where that money came from. So the kicker of a New York Times piece, the Times originally broke this story, although actually it was broken by the North Shore Leader, a Long Island paper that found financial discrepancies in what Santos was claiming. And I don't understand how Robert Zimmerman, who was a Fox News contributor, a lot of people have seen him on that network, who was running against him for the House, first of all, how his own team didn't do the basic due diligence of finding out whether he actually did all the things he claimed to, but even if he hadn't, you grab that North Shore Leader article and you hold a press conference and you hold it up and you say, Mr. Santos, what about this? Did you have these jobs? Where did you graduate? And that blows up the whole campaign. But by this point, it's kind of too late. Anyway, the kicker here is that when Santos was 26, he met a guy who was 18 named Pedro Villarva. Uh, They dated for a few months. Santos said, let's move in together. Villarva said he felt on top of the world, but he found himself paying most of the bills. Quote, Villarva telling the New York Times, he used to say he would get money from Citigroup. He was an investor. One day it's one thing, one day it's another thing. He never, ever actually went to work. And things really fell apart the next year when Santos said, surprised him with two tickets to Hawaii, except they turned out not to exist. Then he discovered his cell phone was missing and believes at least that Santos had pawned it. And then, you know, put his name into a search engine, discovered that Santos, and this goes back to when he was, uh, you know, just over 18, was wanted by the Brazilian police for petty crime, for using somebody else's checkbook. I woke up in the morning, I packed my stuff in old trash bags, I called my father, and I left. And finally, Wall Street Journal piece doesn't use the term Generation Z. I think if I was a Gen Zer, I'd probably be sick of people talking about, you know, are we all a bunch of slackers or whatever. But it cites a survey of 3,000 workers and managers that showed over the last three years, which obviously happens to coincide with the pandemic period, 36% said their career ambitions had waned. 22% said their ambitions had increased. Nearly 40% said work had become less important to them in the past three years. 25% said more important. So this is really interesting. Even in these fields like if you're a lawyer or a financier where you're routinely expected to pull an all-liner, I mean, Elon, this is what Elon Musk talks about when he says, if you want to work here, it's a thousand percent effort. Sometimes you got to sleep here. Otherwise, I don't want you here. But a lot of younger people are saying, well, then screw you. I'm not going to do that. They talk now about physical and mental health. Used to be, if you had any physical and mental health, probably the last people on earth you'd want to know would be your employers. But now no, nobody's ashamed to admit it. And I think that's a good, positive, healthy development. Um, There's one woman quoted here. uh, She's from Virginia Beach, and she's watching these TikToks on healthy work-life balance. By the way, I've been hearing about work-life balance for decades, but usually it's the women, the moms, who end up grappling with that. Although, you know, as a dad, I often would not take certain trips or cut travel short in order to be home for the kids when my kids were younger. 
you know, it's not just something that women have to worry about. Uh, so this woman asked for a uh, performance review. And while she was waiting, she said, I will make more of an effort to act my wage. Meaning she wasn't going to go out all out and kill herself and do all these all-nighters and just have no social life to speak of unless she was properly con- compensated. And she ended up getting a raise of 12.5%. So I think all this is healthy. I think the pandemic has forced a lot of us to examine, look, it became easy for many of us, not the people who had to show up at the police station or the firehouse or the hospital or the grocery store, but those who were lucky enough to have the kind of jobs where they could work remotely. I think it made many of us value more the uh, idea of having some balance in your life. And if Gen Z or whoever else it is, is responsible for that honest discussion and is responsible for not just saying, I will do anything in order to get ahead in this cutthroat society, then that's a good thing. So I appreciate your spending all this time with me in 2022. Our numbers were terrific. I'll get those figures for you. And now as we start out in 2023, um, it really is a nice feeling to have so many of you along. I hope you'll subscribe as we head into starting tomorrow a whole lot of politics, but a whole lot of other stuff as well. We try to, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying about Barbara Walters. Cover the waterfront, things that might be be funny or interesting or gossipy or have world-shattering implications. And with that, we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.